BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's up, Matt? Welcome to the program. Just put on my headset. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, I suppose uh, since we're doing this uh, at an earlier time, you're able to join us today, huh? I just saw it pop up. I thought, oh, there's Chris. I haven't spoken to him in a while. Why not speak to him in front of loads of other people tuning in? That would be that would be a way to catch up with Chris. How are you doing? <laughs> good, good. You know, funny enough, actually, this might be uh, kind of appropriate, you know, given that, um, you know, Brian and I were, of course, going to talk about just like, things that have been going on lately. Like, I mean, this, this well, the end of this year has been kind of insane, but the year, you know, as a whole, in terms of like the big stories and then some prognostication about the year coming. So, you know, you'd be the perfect person actually to throw some ideas around with. Yes, absolutely. Matt, feel free to stay as long as you want and dip out quietly if you want, but um, yeah, let's okay. kick it off, Chris. Great. Welcome everybody to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Thursday, December 8th. Once again, it's been a little bit quiet from us lately, but we are back. Um, I am back in my cold shed in Oakland, California. Uh, it was raining and kind of miserable for a while. Yesterday was beautiful. Now it's gray again. But this is certainly uh, the end of a season and the end of the year. And uh, this is a show for us to, I think, talk about, obviously, some of the things that have been happening over the year that we've been um discussing and analyzing, and then also putting some thoughts together about where uh, next year might take us. Of course, it's very difficult given this year so far, but Brian? Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's let's frame it that way. Let's, let's do the first half will be what the biggest stories of 2022 were, which by the way, um, anyone in the audience, we want to solicit ideas. And then the second half, uh, do a similar thing for prognostications for for 2023. But to, to kick off the year in review, 2022, I thought instead of me picking up the, um, or picking the first big story of the year, I thought I could say definitively what I think the theme of the year is. And I kind of touched on this when we were talking um, last time with Anil Dash, but mm. the, the theme of 2022, in my opinion, is line also goes down. <laughs> because think about all the things that that means, you know, obviously crypto line going down, but also our 401k is going down, especially if you have a lot of tech stocks in, mm-hmm. in your portfolio, you have, I mean, you know, how, what's the market cap loss at Amazon? What happened? Look, uh, line goes down in terms of the narrative has been that the tech industry is dominant, you know, rules the world. Look at meta. Of lots of uh, sort of balloons have been burst this year. Mm-hmm. Um, line going down, line going down with uh, no IPOs, no unicorns. Um, line going down, going down the funnel with um, it's not easy to immediately raise a Series B mm-hmm. round six months after you raised your A. Line going down with the soft banks and, and others of the world no longer writing just obscene checks. <laughs> and line going down with. Um, you know, the tech industry is legit in a recession, and so line going down with with layoffs, mm. right? So mm. that's the theme of 2022. Is line also goes down, which that's the narrative that has been broken 
this year, for the last 10 years, line only went up for everything, basically, in, in the tech industry. You know, I think it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, as opposed to, well, separate from being a little bit depressing, I think it's also very accurate. Um, and obviously, the big question kind of is, perhaps, how far down will that line decline? And what will it look like when it comes back? And when it comes back, you know, if you, if you do think about a little bit back to what we were talking about with Neil last time, and Matt, I'm curious to get your, your perspective on this, um, given your work, you know, will there be kind of this, you know, web 1.0, where it was a lot of just excitement and frothiness and money, you know, going after all sorts of ideas and people who could just throw jargon, you know, around as though they understood what they were talking about. And then web two kind of came along and there was a lot more technical underpinnings and a foundation that you could actually build on and that would actually radically transform the industry. And although there was a lot of background chatter about digital transformation, finally there was actually, you know, methods and mechanisms to enable that. Now we're sort of in this like Web3 space, which, you know, there's been a lot of hype and a lot of nonsense in that space. There was also a lot of money injected into the market uh, thanks to COVID and to the whole pandemic. And and that was sort of an anomalous shock. And now we're in this decline. That decline will wipe out a lot of stuff. Uh, it'll cause a lot of companies to, you know, trim the sales and really focus on the things that are working. Um, and then I don't know, you know, if we get to like Web four or Web five or whatever, you know, it's not really about versioning per se, but a, a new set of baseline assumptions about the environment that allows people to build things differently than, uh, let's say they 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 were able to before, and. I think that's the thing that I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, and, and Matt, what, like, what are, what are you seeing, I guess, sort of in, in, in your space? If you, how, and how would you define the area that you mostly focus on? Would you say that it's mostly social media or do you have a broader? Well, also, yeah, Matt, purview? Matt, uh, yeah, introduce, introduce yourself first. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, sure. So, well, I'm uh, Manavara. I do a lot of stuff with geeky social media stuff. That's all I care about most of the time, sharing what's new, what's changed, what's, why is it important in the world of social media? And I consult for different brands and clients and individuals and uh, I do a weekly newsletter on it as well. Um, yeah, line down. When I see my mind with social media, went straight down to like, hey, I missed that story. Line, the app's gone down. What happened? Where, 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 where did that happen? I missed that story. <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Line, not line, the app. And I'm thinking that, that's not a big deal, surely. Um, but no, I think, yeah, I think the main, the point you were making, yeah, about, you know, things kind of like, going down in terms of, you know, money being uh, sort of so result- available to, to some of these companies and people wanting to cut back quite a lot has meant that things got a little bit more boring. Um, like, you know, Meta has pulled back on lots of the kind of fun, more fun things. If, if Meta does fun things, it tends to kind of just copy lots of people and, and imitate and replicate. But, it, you know, it does, it did throw out quite a lot of stuff in, in the years previously. And, and this year it's been a year where it said, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And we're going to pull back on that. And we're going to focus on this because they've got the double challenge, of course, because they're focusing all of their billions on, on this big goal of the metaverse, which we're all unsure as to where it will end up, as well as the recession and, and, uh, and the repercussions of everything else that's going on in the, the economy. And that's led them to be, yeah, super safe. And then, of course, Twitter, much the same, but for, for different reasons, you know, with Elon Musk, you know, although they've got the richest or was it, he's not the richest man in the world anymore, is he? He's dropped off the list, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the richest, um, uh, 
but still saddled with billions of debt and then uh, chaotic in terms of the management style, but equally kind of having to be cautious with what it invests its time on. And, I, you know, I, if you go through all of the platforms, it, that seems to be the tail of the year. So in the first half of the year, there was far more interesting things going on in terms of features and products and development of the platforms. And then the, the second half of the year has felt a lot more about what they're not going to do rather than what they are trying or are going to do. And a lot, and back to typical behavior of, of copying and imitation with, you know, be real and stuff. So but that, that's certainly from a social media point of view. I could, that's how I've well, seen let, Let's stay on that for a second because, I mean, <clears throat> if, if you're asking me what was the story this year that I couldn't escape even when I wanted to, it was Elon and Twitter, you know, going back to what was it, April when he first said he was going to buy it or March Something even? Like I don't even remember. Yeah. You know, so there was that whole back and forth. But I'm curious, Matt, because. You know, Chris and I have argued on the show about whether or not uh, there's a chance for Twitter clones out there um, to to be successful at this moment in time. But you do have, for the first time that any of us can remember, um, a major social media platform sort of in turmoil. Well, sort of, completely in turmoil in some ways. Twitter's always been in turmoil to some degree. That's true, right? That's another way to think about it too. But but the 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 sense that okay, somebody can be gotten at, maybe somebody could um, do a Twitter clone that would get traction is something that feels possible now. But also think of, um, you know, the, the, the TikTokization and, and, and the feelings about Meta no longer being this, you know, monster company that can do no wrong in terms of, you know, business-wise. Um, do you feel, Matt, that um, the social space uh, without me putting words in your mouth, is in more turmoil than you can remember in recent years? Yeah, I think it's been mixed up a lot more with all the things that have gone on. You know, it, it, it's some, all of these things have come at one time. You'd expect in, in a year that the story might be we've had a recession and tech industries had issues there or, or that, that somebody like Elon Musk has kind of done something dramatic and it's become the character of the year or, or one of the other many threads of stories to do with maybe regulation or anything else. But it, it does seem like a lot of shit happened in, in, in one year. It's been, a, you know, we thought that COVID and, that, and the years of the pandemic were crazy, but for the tech industry, it's been equally kind of uh, traumatic in, in the last 12 months. Um, so, yeah, I think that there, there has been a, a lot going on and it has therefore kind of mixed up the pack a little bit. But I don't think it's going to greatly change the, the, the kind of the pecking order or the power order of, of things. You know, you know, Meta is still as, 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 as rich and, and as kind of all-encompassing on social as it ever was dominant. Um, and uh, most of the other platforms in terms of where they were, in the last year or so haven't dramatically changed. I think Twitter's the exception in, in many ways because of, of what's gone on with Musk. Um, but I think that, you know, as much as I find the guy really irritating, I, I equally can see that he can, it could still go one of two ways. It's either going to go really bad. Or it's going to be the, the coming and the making of Twitter that, you know, we kind of hoped the platform it could become in terms of, you know, it's scaling up a bit more. But I think whatever happens with Twitter, I don't think it's going to, it's going to be the same platform. And I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? It's what, what is, it, he might be successful in getting lots more people on there and more engagement and more, more um, revenue for the company. But for the people that I've used Twitter for years and, and like a lot of what it has done in the past, it, it, they might not like the new, new Twitter 2.0. And I think that's the, the dilemma for 2023. So, staying on this uh, thread real quickly uh, f- with Meta then, um, because you, you know, you said there's still Meta is still dominant, still makes gobs of money, but 
you know, if there's one thing that, you know, we should always give Zuckerberg credit for is looking at the user data, looking at the usage data, mm-hmm. and knowing where things are going. So considering that, you know, it's been a year now since he basically signaled that, you know, they would never say, oh, social media is our legacy business, but they changed the name to Meta uh, and are embracing the metaverse. And th- but when you think of it in those terms, when the leader, the 800-pound gorilla, is basically saying, we've got to go in other directions to find the next thing, does that make sort of social, at least the way they do it and have done it, sort of feel like um, the internet is moving on from social as Mark Zuckerberg you know, understood it? I think broadly that, that yeah, that you can argue with the, the kind of success of, of Meta in terms of the, his, uh, his dominance um, on, on social. And, and you can, we could probably spend the whole hour or two d- deciding whether they did it in a, in a fair and reasonable way. But I don't think any successful big, uh, multinational, whatever company has ever been fair and decent and honest in, in any sort of way, really. And so they've just played a better game than the most and, and at times broken, broken Broken the rules, but that, that's for probably a discussion another time. But in terms of the um, the bets that they've placed, you know, most often they've been pretty good. And when they have realised it's not going the right way, they've been quite quick to pull the plug, which I think has also been a problem for people who use their products. You know, if you're a, particularly if you speak to people like news publishers and and um, in journalism in general, that relationship has been fraught because of um, things that they've started and stopped and started and stopped, and, and that's been a nightmare. And I think for creators, I think I think that's an area at the moment for them meta that they're particularly bad at, and I don't think they I think they could do a lot more with in terms of their relationship and partnership with creators and the monetization strategies that they're putting out there you know then they're, they're not particularly strong when you like rank them up with with others um, no, none of the platforms have been up until very recently, I think YouTube's more, more recent deal. It's trying to strike with people. Uh, YouTube Shorts is a bit better, but generally, uh, you know, the creator economy stuff's been tricky for all of the platforms to figure out what, what will work. But Meta just seems to be kind of like, as always, throwing shitloads of shit at the wall and hoping something will stick and most of it just being very kind of bland. Um, but I think in terms of the, the metaverse stuff and, and the future of the sort of bets that um, Zuckerberg's placing, you know, yeah, it, it, companies uh, need to place big bets. All of them have got kind of their, um, you know, Google and Microsoft. They've all kind of done something that kind of you can see is their their long term goal, where they're, they're sort of they're pointing towards their north star. And then for for Meta, they've been far more public and kind of uh, uh, vocal about the metaverse. And I, and I do think that you know there is going to be a big paradigm shift in, in computing, and, and there's lots of bits that come into that, whether it's NFTs and stuff to do with Web three and other bits. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good bet it's a reasonable bet and i think it will be they will pull pull it off but what i just don't think it will look anything like anyone's predicting it will look like now and i don't think it will probably be quite like the way that they envisage it but um, i think the the main thing for zuckerberg is i don't want to be in a position where i have to rely on apple and google and everybody else to be able to 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 dominate this industry and that's why it's such a focus for him and um, we'll see what happens yeah most of my primary topics probably for the 2022 bingo card. And so, like, and so when I think about the core of what you just said, there are a number of tensions that, you know, if, if, if Facebook and Zuckerberg kind of are, you know, one really good at reading the tea leaves through the data, just because of the enormous amount of data that they have, and they can kind of predict and see 
human behavior or, or social behavior and social sentiment ahead of most other people. Clearly, Zuckerberg was seeing that Apple, and I mean, I, I've been talking about this for several years, um, how Apple has been building more or less social networking capabilities into the operating system um, in a very subtle and very strategic and uh, kind of very discreet way so that regulators won't actually be able to see how Apple is slowly you know, strangling like Facebook. And so that motivates Zuckerberg, of course, to realize the platform dependency challenge, um, you know, given his um, mentorship, tutorship um, from Bill Gates, of course, the original nemesis of Steve Jobs. And so we're sort of seeing the continuation of the same platform wars that have been defining the computing landscape, you know, for, for, I mean, several generations now, I think what's, what's interesting about it is, is to your point, you know, Zuckerberg has had to make several bets. And one of them is of course on owning a major hardware based computing platform that defines the nature of how people will compute in the future. And what seems to be different is that he took a huge leap towards behavior that didn't already exist as opposed to designing for behavior that already existed. I mean, one of the things that I've observed in my own efforts, of course, to you know, design social products is being downstream of behavior or observing a behavior that people want to engage in and that find that they find difficult to do. And then building, you know, technology or solutions to make that less frictionful is oftentimes a really good way, you know, to grease the wheels of building, you know, new behaviors or new products. Uh, I think a really good example of this there's probably two for 2022 that are the most standout examples. One, you have, of course, TikTok, which you know got its start during the pandemic. Um, people's attitudes and content consumption behaviors changed. Uh, it was sort of, I don't know, we were stuck at home and information waterboarding you know, was kind of like the new thing that gave us a way to escape from what was happening. Um, but the other thing that's happening, I think, post-pandemic is the rise of Be Real. And Be Real is sort of Apple's new darling, um, as well as actually Google plays be real apparently is, is in both app stores. It, uh, was, um, chosen as app of the year in both places. And it represents a new type of behavior that probably was happening largely through messaging. And now is something that I think there's a cohort of people who are looking for that type of very short, specific, um, you know, semi-random, I guess, prompts, to you know, share with other people with what they're doing without any filtering, and so that also was a re- rejection and resistance to um, the professionalization that has been happening on social media for the last ten years. So, sorry to, to try to bring this around. What I'm trying to say is three things. One is that Apple and the Apple Tax and the Apple Garden is a very dangerous place for a lot of companies that connect to people or their customers through the internet and through mobile devices. Two is that behaviors, I think, are starting to change with a generation that's coming up in social media today, where they look at the way that, you know, me, you, and uh, Brian kind of all use social media, and they're like, eh, it eh, seems like you guys are, are weird, and it's like boring, and, you know, why are you guys taking it so seriously? We don't want that. Um, not to mention looking at, like, Elon Musk and, like, all the, I don't know, free speech absolutism and everything, and they're just like, that's too political for them. And I'm thinking mostly, like, you know, teenagers, maybe people in college. And then there's the aspect of regulation. And so I'm very curious to see like how regulation in these environments from advertising to privacy to digital identity, um, you know, not to mention geopolitics is going to affect the things that people are able to build and do in 2023.
Hey, timely, Chris. Um, the FTC just sued to block uh, Microsoft from uh, oh, acquiring did. Activision just now. Yes. Wow. Okay. So um, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Matt, did you have a comment on that? Or I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I think that, that it's good just to briefly talk about Be Real because a kind of mm-hmm. lot of things converse on on the story of, of the year with in terms of social. You know, it, it certainly is one of the kind of uh, the darlings of social. Is that a good phrase? Or, or certainly one of the those totally. success stories. Yeah. But also, um, it, it, I think it tells a, a story of, of, of social media as it is right now. I think Chris was kind of leaning into that with his comments a minute ago. Is that you know, there, there's definitely a craving from social media users particularly younger users i try and avoid using the sort of the, 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 the gen z words and but but certainly the younger audiences even generation alpha as well which is even, even younger um that they they don't use social in, in the same way that we do and they don't have the same expectations and they don't want they're not engaged by the same things and the mechanics of the platforms that the things that they want from it are, are very different and, and be real really kind of landed on some Thing that kind of tapped into that, but the problem for, for be real is, as has been well covered in, in the news, is kind of like, is it a feature or is it a platform? They think it's a platform, but most people think it's a feature, and therefore it has been very quickly imitated, copied, and replicated by TikTok now and and similar versions on Instagram. Well, yeah, Instagram and, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and it's not likely that um, that it, it would have been it would have taken long for them to do that. We expect them to do that, um, and now there's a big question mark of so what's your next trick be real what are you going to do um but it has been named as as you mentioned you know app of the year on on both of the you know the, the major app stores and you know seeing younger users you know my own children who are te- young teens uh, who are fascinated by it and uh, you know can see the popularity but i think um but it, it, there's an also a bit in there about kind of the the idea of kind of like how likely is it that in 2023 uh, that we're going to see um, another uh, be real. Well, I think it's likely in the sense that there is a, a, a somewhat a lack of innovation in social media and platforms in general, which is what I was talking about an article in, today about um, and how there's still a lot of copycat behavior and playing safe, and particularly at the moment when the platforms are trying to kind of kind of what are the bets that are going to cost the least in terms of time and resource, but going to deliver the most growth and engagement in the time when we're cutting back. Um, so that's going to clearly going to lend itself to, to copycats. Um, and what does that mean in terms of startups like Be Real, in terms of their their ability and their motivation to kind of innovate in this space and come out with something? Because they know that they're going to have to scale really freaking quickly and they're going to have to have a good kind of way of either of deep pockets to kind of buy their way into the market like, like Bike Dance did in terms of acquisition of new users. Uh, and they're going to have to kind of iterate quickly to to kind of counteract the, the likelihood that if it's something really good, it's going to be copied. So um, it, 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 B-Real has been fascinating to watch it play out. Um, I'm just disappointed that we've come to the year end and I'm not not particularly optimistic about it being something that this time next year in a similar kind of Twitter space, if Twitter's still here, that we'll be talking about because it just still feels like they haven't really done a lot. So yeah, B-Real is very interesting. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. 
access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools, uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team, discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology, and learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again, and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. Wait, so what, just, just, just on to put a point on that, because I do think that understanding be real and looking at it is important. Is it just that you think that it's a one trick pony and so therefore there's not a lot of room for growth or why do you think it won't be as relevant next year? Um, I think the combination of both, which is a bit of a cop out answer, but I think it is a bit of both. I think that, um, that, that I haven't seen anything coming out of, of, of the, the company. They're pretty quiet. I don't know if you've noticed, they really don't like talking to yeah, the media, you know, quiet. they they're very resistant. They don't have any at the top, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, so it's a bit mysterious. And then you could argue it's because they haven't got anything to say, but it equally could be they've got bigger plans and they don't want to reveal it because they know they'll be copied. Um, but, but yeah, I think that, that I'm, uh, I'm unsure. I'm not confident that they've got enough to, to come back with that's going to keep people engaged and interested and, and take their time away, pull people's attention away from the platforms that are investing in all manner of other features and things that people want to spend time on. So I think that there's that. Um, um, and I think that, that we will see other quirky platforms. We've seen it, you know, Chris, you've been in this space longer than I have probably. And, and, and we've seen so many things like Peach and I can't remember, you know what, all the names escape me, but there's a long list. All of these, these platforms that have come and gone and, and Dispo and, and, and a few others, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. what's, um, I feel that there'll probably be two or three, four, five of those that are significant next year. And there'll be one that will be the one a bit like be real, but, but very few of them stick. You know, TikTok, if you think back to social media in the last five years of platforms, that have been significant major platforms, ByteDance who spent billions and buying their way into the market is the only one that did it. And that's because I think they had the money and the technological yeah. know-how. So, yeah. Okay, I, just a reminder to the audience that if folks want to raise their hands and, and offer other uh, candidates for biggest story of the year, uh, please feel free to do that and we'll bring you up. But before we bring someone else up, uh, Chris, I wanted to offer you the opportunity to pitch what you think the biggest story um, in the tech universe was this year. 
what I would consider to be the biggest tech story has to weave together a number of different things that are going on. Um, and that I think will provide some momentum into 2023. And I, I just got to say, like, I think that generative AI is probably the biggest story. That's the most interesting. That is the most likely candidate um, for the, the top story. And the reason I would posit that is a couple things. One is that, yeah, I remember all the way back in 2016 when I left Uber to go work on conversational software on a conversational startup. Um, I, you know, we saw that the the new AI focused silicon was starting to come out and was being developed, but it wasn't yet available at scale, nor was it really readily available to consumers. And I think what OpenAI has been doing in particular in bringing things like Dolly and ChatGPT. To the mainstream is, I mean, it is it is to some degree sort of like an iPhone moment, I think, in the sense of what it unlocks and, and what type of power suddenly everyone has at their disposal in, in, at their disposal in a way that they didn't before. Um, you know, I was and have been following the uh, the AI generated avatar thing for quite some time. I've been following um, the speech synthesis for a while and, you know, Descript, Descript bought uh, Lyrebird and now the new Descript platform can literally write your podcast for you. And if you imagine combining that with ChatGPT, like this whole podcast could almost be done, um, you know, purely through AI. And where this goes, I think is super interesting because as we're, we're sort of like pushing on two different threads when it comes to understanding media and technology in this moment. One is the professionalization of rote junk that kind of gets out there. I mean, if, I don't know, most of my my email inbox now is, and apologies, Matt, to all the people that you consult with, but like, it's a lot of just stuff that's like constantly being produced and regurgitated. And there's all these little tools now that will generate headlines for you and will write the stuff for you. Um, and it's almost like, for what purpose? Like, it's just sort of emitting stuff that, you know, the open rates are probably infinitesimal, super small, and yet they have to keep emitting in order to be part of just the the sort of, you know, marketplace um, in the information economy. And I think that that just creates a sense of isolation and loneliness because there's so much, you know, fakeness out there. Be Real is actually a attempt, I think, to bring more humanity and uh, connection back into this environment that's become very artificial, very false. And at the same time, now we're letting anybody create complete artificially but interesting and compelling works of art or expression or um, just to synthesize the, I don't know, it's not the sunk cost, but, you know, I've sort of been thinking about how uh, training data is the new fossil fuel that is going to power a whole new industrial era where individuals get to create whatever they want, however they want. Mm -hmm. And the problem, to some degree, will be about distribution and audience, but you'll be able to, I think, produce, I don't know, work in a way that you were never able to do before by taking advantage of hundreds or thousands of years of human creativity. And that is like, I just don't know what we're going to do with that, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to be amazing and it's going to be terrifying and it's going to be very problematic. Um, and so I just look at that and I think that that's super interesting. Um, and I think if we think about that from the lens of augmentation, as opposed to adversarial, um, an adversarial relationship with our technology, then there's a lot of hope and promise. But I know that there's going to be a lot of exploitation there it already. I mean, if you saw or just look at what happened when um, uh, Twitter blue verification was made available to everybody and instantly 
you had all sorts of fraud and all sorts of bad behavior, you know that there's going to be so much bad behavior that comes out of the uh, ability to use these new tools. That's true of all technological revolutions and improvements. Um, and so fighting back against some of those things to maintain some you know, positivity is going to be something that is going to constantly have to be something that, you know, trusted mm, agents in the space, like think about it, and whether that's Apple or Google, you know, Meta's, you know, maybe there's an amazing redemption story there. I don't know. But um, I just see like AI and it's and the accessibility at the consumer level to be the thing that is probably the most interesting story for 2022. So I um I brought Martin on stage because uh, in his bio he says illustrator. So in case he might have something to say about uh, this AI stuff, uh, go ahead, Martin. Or if not, uh, again, you can just bring up um, whatever topic you wanted to bring up. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I just want to talk about uh, some uh, things that happened in last um, eighty three days. Uh, well, you know, I just want to first of all uh, thank to everyone here and a very special thank to Chris Messina uh, uh, because of creating hashtag because, you know, in 16, uh, September 16, uh, a 22-year-old um, young woman uh, passed away by morality police in Iran who couldn't, uh, you know, she was arrested because her hijab wasn't in a proper way that uh, they said, and you know, after that, we all, uh, you know, forget our what what is our profession, like a illustrator, doctor, musician, everyone. We all try to write her name, and we we started hashtagging name, say her name, and some hashtags were in English, and I think for like uh, eighty million uh, people who unfortunately they're in a bad situation in Iran. Uh, Twitter and uh, was a big help, and you know uh, there there were some sad parts. Some people they try to create different hashtags that you know try to take over uh, this name. And uh, the thing is, just I'm uh, I I created this uh, Twitter account, but I wasn't on it uh, since uh, you know 2015. But you know. We all suddenly, everybody, I, I live in upstate New York, but I came to the United States eight years ago. I was in Iran since I was 30, and suddenly everybody is tired of what's happening in Iran. And uh, these hashtags were a big help uh, for, you know, uh, and today, we start today all uh, with a news from execution, a young person who was just protesting a lot of children. Yeah, but Martin, I, I've been following the story, um, you know, of what's going on in Iran, and it's 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 truly something. I mean, and you know, one thank you for for those comments. Um, obviously, we we've seen, you know, maybe one thing that you could help um, to share a little bit about from your perspective is whether or not it feels like there might actually be something that breaks through here. Because we've recently heard that the morality police has been, I guess, either shut down or or something um, in response to some of these protests. But it's hard to get a sense for whether or not that actually will persist, and whether it's it's an effective change. Um, you know, just as with the Arab Spring in 2015, you know, hashtags and social media more broadly, you know, played a role in bringing people together and starting up conversations that needed to happen and the world needed to hear. This feels like one of those moments. But now the kind of attention span is even shorter. So, what is your sense of how this might actually take shape um, in 2023? 
Um, yes, uh, thank you for this opportunity. The thing I just want to say, you know, everybody, you know, there was a there was a many many news about who's going to go to Mars first, like, uh, and and the, after that we we all like a lot of people they thought that you know there there's we cannot use social media and we cannot use uh, internet because the government shuts internet over there. So it was was some news that somebody might help to bring internet because you know internet is like our eyes and you know we're we're, we're absolutely blind uh, from or we're deaf without internet and uh, my Sorry, question can you can you just like maybe give us a little bit more sense for where you think this might go or just just so that we have a time for other folks to, to also contribute yes uh, I, my question was uh, what is there a, is there any opportunity to what do you think? Is there going to be any news in future that uh, everybody can use internet or like because of uh, in some dictatorships, they close the internet and you see, you absolutely hear nothing from what's going on over there. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. I think this is actually a really good um, topic to bring up um, just in, ter- in terms of the sense of like the splinter net that may be happening and the fragmentation. And I was actually going to bring this up as and Matt, I'm curious to, to hear your perspective um, oh, do we lose Matt? Uh, it looks like we did. Okay. Well, Brian, maybe I'll get your perspective, um, which is it feels like, and, and I can only speak, of course, to my own experience on Twitter, but that there's a smaller number of people who are now posting more, that there actually has, or there is something to the exodus and the migration. And that that seems to be happening, I think, more broadly, that people are moving into smaller groups, maybe smaller chat groups. Uh, whether it's on you know Telegram or WhatsApp or elsewhere like that, there's that that's happening. And then globally, internationally, there's also it seems to be a fragmentation where parts of the internet are kind of either you know going dark or being disconnected from you know the main thing. And so even though I think this is very hard for humans to understand, and I will include myself in that list um, to get a sense for how many people are actually involved in the conversations that you're having. And it may seem like just because there are hundreds or thousands of people around you that are all you know sharing, posting, tweeting, sharing photos on Instagram, you know sharing photos to Facebook, that everyone is is all part of the same conversations. But in fact, we're not. There are so many people out there in the world, there's so many conversations that are going on that achieving a type of coherence across the networks, across these different pockets of of interaction and communication is really hard to make sense of. I mean, I will say that I've been the, uh, let's see, the Mastodon iOS client, of course, Mastodon being one of those sort of, you know, Twitter competitors that's now uh, gaining some steam, um, added the uh, added support for following hashtags. uh, by last week, I would say. Now, why is that important? You're like, oh, it's like a Twitter clone. Like, of course they should have following hashtags, but think about it from a different perspective. Think about what uh, Mastodon is built on the concept of the Fediverse, which essentially is a decentralized social network where there are many different servers. And, you know, you can imagine that each of those servers is, is kind of like its own little, you know, mini blog site where people are posting content. Well, if you want to be able to aggregate conversations around certain hashtags from the Fediverse, what well, actually is quite a big deal. Like that's actually both technologically challenging and you have to figure out how to filter the content that's being published so that it actually gets aggregated into a single person's feed. It's not sort of like, you know, uh, an email address that everyone is sending messages to. It's quite the opposite. It's sort of more like a search function. And so searching across the Fediverse is actually, I think, you know, quite an interesting, um, I don't want to say like innovation, but, but technological challenge and boundary or barrier for the Fediverse picking up. And so the fact that that's happening now means that there are bridges being built between these different social islands that is critical, I think, to the Fediverse actually 
um, having some uh, either legitimacy, but also usage for the types of things that um, Martin's talking about. Yeah. And also you've seen, and again, we should stress, of course, we're not geopolitical experts or anything like that, but um, in the places that we've seen strife um, this year, Iran, uh, China recently, but also think of like uh, Ukraine, like the, the internet's never gone down in Ukraine. Um, you have in China, you know, obviously the, the censors are attempting to police social media and you keep seeing this whack-a-mole thing of, of protesters going around it. Same thing in Iran. Um, <clears throat> so in a way it's interesting that if, when it, when it was just one thing, when it was just like, all right, okay, turn off Twitter inside this country or turn, right. turn off the internet full stop. Right. Now that things are so every like if you chase people, even in Russia, you hear about like there are telegram channels where people are talking um, freely about what they really think about how the war is going and things like that. Like there are all yeah. these little nooks and crannies now where um, people <laughs> where people can go sort of like, you know, in the book 1984, Winston Smith had that little corner behind the TV where the big right. brother couldn't see him. Yeah. But also the users are more sophisticated now so that even if you don't find those corners, you can still operate in the, in the larger web and sort of evade, you know, like you saw those scenes of, of people holding up the, the blank pieces of paper. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, I, I guess in a way the internet still remains undefeated for, um, not being entirely killable. I'm sure there are examples that people can bring up about, um, you know, shutting down the internet entirely and, and it worked to, to stifle dissent. But, um, I don't know. Well, sort of, you I, know. It's funny, like as you're bringing this up, you know, I was thinking about this, um, with regards to Elon Musk, you know, purchasing Twitter, believing that, you know, that like preserving the town square, you know, is, is essential for free speech. And it occurred to me that, of course, you know, Twitter is centralized. And in the cases where Twitter is blocked around the world, you know, I, I, I realized that the U.S. is unique in its preference for having free speech, that actually that assumption is not built into all cultures all over the world. And, you know, if I just I don't I'm having a hard time thinking about how if, if, if Elon Musk truly believes this and thinks about things from a if not civilizational, you know, perspective, but from a, you know, a species perspective, he wants to take humanity to, to Mars, will free speech exist on Mars? And if it does, then what was the process by which free speech as an absolute right was disseminated on earth through social media and technology and the internet as an adaptive generative sort of emergent system um, is almost like the sort of step zero to achieving that. Because without the internet, then it's much harder for people to actually be able to raise their voice in unison and find and connect and collaborate with each other, right? So, like free speech, I think you know, as as uh, what was it? What was the thing about something dying in um, or sunlight is the best disinfectant or something like that? Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think that's the phrase. Metaphors, but something like that where you essentially have to have the network first in order to enable free speech to be experienced by everybody who currently does not have that right or that ability. And so that would be the first order of, of, of business. Now, granted, he's doing that with Starlink um, and you know the satellite system. But nonetheless, in cases where the internet is suppressed, it's much harder for people to have the experience of that ability. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to do a $5 segue here (laughs) because there's, there's one more topic that I want to propose for the biggest story of the year. And it will also give us a way to seg into our predictions for next year. Great. Um, 
we're talking about centralization versus decentralization. What does that make you think of? Crypto. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> now, here's the point. Obviously, if we were a more uh, crypto-focused show, you know, there would be huge stories we'd be talking about. It, but I, what I think I, I would say generally is that is the lens that I think is important for crypto this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't there when like Mount Gox and like mm-hmm. you know some some of the first blowups and 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 rug pulls and and you know the first ninety percent drop in coin prices and stuff. I was there during the ICO boom, mm-hmm. and the point that I would make is that there's been several boom bust cycles in crypto, and people like to say you know the boom bust cycle that could take a decade and another space could take three months mm-hmm. in in crypto. Um, I do not remember previous times when crypto had a boom bust cycle that the general media and the general public was aware of it. Um, so to the, think of what to the yeah. degree that they are now. Well, FTX is a name that everyone knows. Well, uh, Sam, I mean, Sam Bankman Fried is a name that football, everyone knows. Like yeah. the football during the Super Bowl in yes. January, they yeah. actually bought out the ads. They were sponsoring stadiums, right? There was so oh. much money. And so much money being splashed around again during the pandemic, all those pandemic relief funds were being funneled into crypto where people were seeing returns like they'd never seen before. And for those, you know, who had been on the sidelines of the Web2 kind of, you know, rise and all the, you know, multimillionaires that were minted thanks to their early investments in platforms like Facebook, like Google, like to some degree, Twitter, etc. Suddenly, retail investors had exposure to those types of gains that they never yeah. had before. And so that fueled so like and gave so much momentum. Whereas the Mt. Gox era, like you had to be very technical. You had to like there wasn't sort of friendly front ends like Coinbase, you know, where you could invest in crypto and sort of see your portfolio rise. So the fact that, you know, all that work had been done to one, centralize, two, to make it easier for people to get in, and then three, for all this media and advertising hype to be part of it, I think is the thing that makes this so much more salient to the audience that you're speaking to. We're speaking of. Yeah. And so obviously there was more participation. There was also, you know, celebrities involved this time. And it was, it was like we were just saying, maybe in 2017, it was still corners of the internet that people didn't care about. Whereas, you know, um, there's been a lot of uh, main characters every day on Twitter and in the media this year. And, um, you know, Sam Bankman Fried's been mm-hmm. one of them. But like, even when, you know, I, I, I visited relatives this summer. And they know what I do for the show. But what they asked me about, this was around the time that this was what, uh, July or late June, when the first um, blowups were happening, right? Um, I can't remember, Terra, Luna, all that yes. stuff. Yep. Um, and that's what they wanted to know about. Like, they didn't ask me about any other tech stories. Like, that was the thing. Well, because somebody did have money on one of these or whatever, or people had money on maybe FTX at the time. And they were, you know, asking, like, should we be worrying about that? Mm-hmm. So it is, it, it is interesting the degree to which, um, despite the fact that there's a certain segment of the audience that always yells at me for talking about crypto, crypto was the main. Tech stories this year was for these sorts of blowups and with some of these outlandish characters. Like, I mean, that's even forgetting who, who's the, 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 the duo that, um, allegedly, uh, stole all that money and they got uh, arrested here in New York. I, so many crypto stories oh, yeah. like that. The rappers. That, 
Yeah, th- right. Um, that are tailor made for that sort of thing. You know, somebody's going to do a nice Netflix series about them someday. You know, um, so that's interesting for crypto because then you know people, the, the true believers in crypto for years have been like mainstreaming it, mainstreaming it. That's that's what we have to do. Okay, that's happened for you, and now the problem is is that, is that what was mainstreamed is actually the complete wrong story that you want to have mainstream was the mainstreaming experience that everyone had um horrific and sort of the lesson of oh my god i'm never going to touch that again with a 10-foot pole um obviously a lot of people in crypto spaces are talking about that i i, I want to pause you though and, and and ask maybe to to clarify a little bit because mm-hmm. you started out kind of you know with, with your proposal for story of the year being about um, you know decentralization, decentralization and centralization, mm-hmm. and I guess what I wonder is if this story actually has very little to do with crypto, but that crypto yep. was an enabler of a type of grift that we just haven't seen since Enron, and that every you know decade or so there needs to be a grift like story like this. Last time it was about energy markets and blackouts or, or Bernie Madoff. Yeah, I, ironically, right? Like thinking about all the energy that is used to actually mine Bitcoin and all the other cryptos. Like same thing back then. It's all just energy and power and just the way in which it's exploited to make people lots and lots of money, whether it's you know oil or energy, etc. Now it's the same thing. And so I guess I, I wonder if this is truly a story of crypto or a story of you know human behavior uh, that just continues to repeat itself. Right, and certainly. Um Crypto true believers have been making that point. If Brady Dale were here, he would make mm-hmm. that point for us uh, more eloquently than me, which is that the problem here was you still had venal people in charge that mm-hmm. saw bags of money and couldn't resist grabbing it. And um, so the solution to that is to return to the original vision of Satoshi, which is, you know, uh, it, true DeFi, this would not have been allowed to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And the points have been made, I, I think I mentioned on the show a couple of times, that some of the um, decentralized exchanges have not blown up. That mm-hmm. right. a lot of the blowups have been because there are actual human beings behind them that make greedy, venal decisions. And um, you know, one of the promises of crypto, you know, it, it, it's always like about um, is trustless and things yes. like that. Uh, and and so yeah, um, yeah I mean, you can make you the argument. Pay for right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> what I was going to say then to tra- transition to predictions because you and I, I'm actually going through our, our, uh, uh, chats over the mm. last two weeks. Um, cause we've been kicking around ideas that I've, I've said like, Oh, let's bring that up. Uh, this is not a prediction because I'm not deep enough in the crypto space to make an informed prediction, mm. but I'm going to pose a what if, mm-hmm. which is along the lines of what we just said is if crypto finally had its mainstreaming moment and all people saw was grift and, mm you know, blood on the dance floor. Um, what if that's bullish for Bitcoin for the original? (laughs) Because what if the people, obviously look, there's too many people that are in the space and are interested in developing in the space for crypto to go away completely. So a possible case is what we just said that true DeFi will rise from the ashes. But one of the things that I I remember saying this on the show a couple of years ago, when all of a sudden we were talking about crypto again, and it was, DeFi and and uh, yield farming and things like that and like there was true like energy and innovation. If everybody's burned off of that, this is my this is my what if. Mm-hmm. 
but people still are like, you know, I've, I've been pilled enough to believe that I should put a, per, a certain percentage of my whatever into crypto just as you would put a certain percentage into gold or real estate or whatever. So if that were to happen, then that, this is Bitcoin's chance to come roaring back mm-hmm. in, in the sense that it's, it's the best brand in terms of crypto. It's the oldest brand. It's the most well-known. It hasn't blown up. Like, yeah. think of all of the things that have blown up. Crypto still is, again, to use the term undefeated in terms of, like, no one's really been able to break it. Um, so my what if for 2023 is what if Bitcoin comes roaring back for the normies to fulfill the promise that some people had for it, which was store of value digital gold? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a really interesting question from a slightly different angle, um, which is one... Uh, the, the, the media environment as it is now is almost antithetical or again, oppositional to the, the types of success that are, are enduring. And when I think about that, it's sort of the things that are, are boring and that continue to chug along and that continue to kind of like, you know, make consistent, steady progress like year over year. And honestly, like when I was thinking about Apple today, it, you know, it occurs to me that like they really have just continued to operate with a level of consistency and execution to the point where, I mean, they, they can always like dial it in. I mean, their events now are, you know, they they try to be fun and, and exciting and, and whatever. I mean, there really hasn't been that much innovation when it comes to like Mac OS. Uh, there is underlying and under the hood, a lot of things that have changed, but for the most part, I mean, the dock is more or less the same, you know, the file structure is, has been the same since, you know, like the late eighties. So your point about Bitcoin being stable and undefeated, the thought that I had is what happens when we move to an era and a generation where the concept of internet money is redundant in the same way that you say, oh, I have like a mobile device. You're like, no, you have a device. And of course now it can be untethered. It doesn't need to be plugged in all the time. It can connect to, you know, 5G, you know, and it works as well as your you know desktop used to. So we're moving away from those types of mm, like definitions, they, they become less meaningful. There is still a lot of people that think of, you know, money and fiat currency as like, you know, dollars and checks and things like that from the old world of money that relies on centralized trust built institutions that were established over, you know, hundreds of years. You know, we might be able to compress that time factor and that time frame with crypto and, and, and Bitcoin in particular, you know, to a decade or so. I mean, we're coming up on a decade, I think, if not have we already passed a decade? We might have already passed a decade. Of of Bitcoin? I think it was 2008 or 2009, That's what right? I'm going to say. Yeah, 2008. Yeah, so where's Brady Dill? Yeah, we're still early early innings. We're approaching 15 years, yes. Go on. Yeah, well, okay. Well, yeah, yes. this is hard. I, I missed up megabytes and my gigabytes yesterday. It was... Oh, uh, don't get me started on that. Yeah. yeah. You, you, sometimes you say MBPS and you say... Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyways, what, what I'm trying to say, though, in supporting your point, but also adding to it, is so so one this year was all about kind of like the speculation and the speculation bubble and you know the tool of bloom or whatever kind of like you know coming off the rails for the crypto story but if it persists and all the people like as you say are building for it they have not only been you know red pilled but they are operating from a different logic their logic is that there is internet money and internet money is useful for transactions and commerce and it's both more efficient and has on the longer time horizon, less fees than, let's say, just paying to Stripe or paying to, you know, Visa and Amex and MasterCard or whatever, and that it allows them to innovate faster, they will be able to take advantage of this moment 
and the education that people have gone through such that the next cohort yeah. coming up will actually feel like they actually understand some of the pitfalls and they'll know, well, I don't want to say they'll know to avoid the FTXs of the world, but uh, they'll be using it for different purposes. What could be very interesting, and I don't think it's going to happen, although if it did, it would it could be game changing. You know, there's already a lot of crypto underpinnings built into Twitter. And if, you know, Elon wanted to make, like, it's so insane to me that he's talking about increasing the price of Twitter Blue to $11 for iPhone users and having a second, like, lesser price on the web. I actually don't think that it's allowed by the App Store policies. But regardless, if he were to just move to crypto for payments, he could avoid this whole thing. Uh, you know, maybe it would cut off a lot of his potential audience and market. But it feels like that moment where if you really wanted to change things up, he would move to, you know, Dogecoin or Bitcoin or something else um, rather than having to go through the fiat app store process for, for the transactions. Well, so I don't then, know why he doesn't do that with Twitter 2.0. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One password. One password combines industry leading security with award winning design to bring private, secure and user friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else: your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. One Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon, because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride, onepasswordcom slash ride. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ride. I think the conversation you and I had um, in our DMs was, I said, well, why, why chain? Like if, if, because there's a story I haven't done about like, you know, the, the economy of Roblox and things like that. And, and, right. and you yeah. and I were talking about having these sorts of, you know, it's essentially micropayments. It's the same thing. And the argument would be, okay, well, crypto is, is there to solve that problem, but 
the reason I'm asking why chain is like in theory, like you don't need a blockchain to do any of this stuff. But you know what you just the said point was about the interop, right? Right, right, right. And so, so this this is why I think it's interesting. You know, one that. Twitter already supports Lightning and Sats, and so you can tip people um, using crypto. Um, it's interesting, you know, going back to the first story that you wanted to that we were talking about with the Twitter alternatives. Um, post News, or I don't know if it's just Post, um, has its own micro tipping feature, but it's all fiat. And so the problem with what Gnome is doing is that he'll never get into the App Store if he wants to actually make a business because Apple will instantly take thirty percent. So right now he has a progressive web app, a PWA for post that you can, you know, sort of install as a, um, a shortcut, but it, you know, as much as the web has come along, it is nearly, it is nowhere near as good as having a native app. I mean, notifications don't really work. Um, I tried uploading a video. It doesn't support video. Like there's a bunch of things that just aren't really there yet as, as good as it is. However, you know, the crypto piece and the decentralization piece and the interoperability piece. I mean, for example, if Mastodon wanted to add tipping, crypto would be the obvious way to do it because then you could just have your uh, crypto wallet address and no matter what server someone uses, they'd be able to tip you. Like that—that that is the, I think the thing that's really important to understand about how that this could actually usher in a new set of behaviors and a new set of ways of supporting, right. you know, creators that, that at least 2022 did not produce. Like the, the, the Twitter creator tools, didn't seem to work. A lot of the creator um, programs uh, from Pinterest to Instagram uh, to several others have kind of either shut down or been, um, you know, largely shrunk. Um, so it's just, it's not clear when the economics are going to get there for a lot of people, I, I suppose, besides sub Substack. Um, I'm going to pivot one more time and mm-hmm. give you a, a solid prediction for next year and right. then offer you the opportunity to do the same thing. If anybody... Yeah. Also, in the audience has a prediction. Um, feel free to raise your hand, Anil. I see you there, but um, he declined, so maybe he's working. Um, but I already said this on the show this week. Um, it's going to be very interesting to me that the whole AR VR headset sort of movement is—it's you know—we're uh, going to hit the ground next year, and it, we're going to find out. We won't know next year if this is really the next big thing or not. It's going to be a decade-long thing, but we're going to learn some really interesting things next year. Obviously, when, as we expect, Apple enters the market and then, as they've done before, possibly prove the market, you know, um, and but the, the PlayStation VR is out there. Um, Meta's next headsets are out there. As I said before, everybody and their mother is the same way that, you know, when Apple did a watch, everybody briefly did a watch and, you know, um, so watches. Mm-hmm. right, right, right. The it's about, uh, a product perspective. Uh, are you excited about that at all? Be it, <laughs> let's, let's call it the XR space. Let's call it AR or VR or whatever. I, I actually would argue that I think AR has the best chance of being successful before VR in a, in a mainstream meaningful way. Um, but from a product perspective, are you excited by potentially this ecosystem, or is this something that you're still agnostic about? Um, I don't feel agnostic, as in like I'm unconvinced. I would say here, one of my great concerns about a lot of the technology that's being developed right now, and why I think the generative AI story is such a big deal for 2023, simply comes down to cost and cost as a determinant of accessibility. So my brother runs an XR stage um, in Southern New Hampshire and I visited him uh, over the holidays and man, the stuff that he is building in Unreal 
it is unreal. Like the, the direction of like media is incredible. And once you layer in and, you know, we actually had um, my, my nephews and my brother on, if you remember a long time ago to talk about his XR right, stage, right, right, right. right. And the, the nature of generative AI being brought into that environment and creating these immersive worlds. I mean, imagine like chat, chat GPT scripted characters. Now granted it may not be great, but it can improve. It's going to get better being uh, avatars that you can actually interact with. And in fact, I hunted um, uh, an avatar generation service called InWorld um, recently that does this, where they essentially can create characters like, you know, you or I, for example, we could live in one of these metaverses. People could come up to us and everything that we say would be trained, let's say in all of our podcast interviews or all of our other, you know, things that we've written, et cetera. And that creates a passable experience in those environments. So on the one hand, very excited about that. Um, and I think it's going to be hugely transformational for those who can afford it and those who can access it. I mean, the stage that my brother set up was not inexpensive to build. Um, and so I think that's going to be a real headwind uh, for these these technologies becoming uh, more common. I mean, I just don't know how many people want to go to the mall and hang out in like a VR, you know, headset like space or something. It's just it's fine if you're a teenage boy, I think. But for everyone else, I'm just uh, I'm having a hard time seeing the modality by which most people will adopt and use these technologies. Um, uh, by the way, um, Anil Dash just uh, DM'd me. He says he's on the web listening, so he can't join uh, in, of course. But he wanted <laughs> to make the point that um, he says we're seeing big uptick in Fediverse plus AR, and he mentioned web.immers, I-M-M-E-R-S dot space, um, which uh, I'm checking out right now. But um, <clears throat> we'll have plenty of time in the ramp up to Apple announcing whatever it's going to do. Yeah, but, one um, more thing that I want to add to, yeah. to, to your point though, like, and I think it's worth pointing out and considering that Apple doesn't always win and they don't always right. get it right. I think right. the, the home pod is a great example of this where, you know, one Siri isn't that good. So Apple and yep. AI, like they do some things, but they're a little bit, I don't want to say like shy. I, I just don't know. Like they haven't, their prowess there isn't at the level of, you know, honestly, I think, you know, meta is actually pretty far advanced when it comes to AI. Obviously open AI has some of the best, smartest people. They're building amazing things that are accessible. Um, Google, you know, seems to, I don't know why, like they seem to be a little bit scared about going too heavy with what they probably could do based on regulations that are coming out. I don't, I don't really know, but um, I, I think that whatever Apple builds in this space is going to be probably somewhat underwhelming to start. I think it'll be like magical, um, but it might just be, I don't know, like Apple Maps directions overlaid on the real world. It is, is going to be expensive platform. too. It's going to yeah. be expensive. So this is what I mean, yeah. right? Like, you know, the, the iPhone, the first iPhone was also pretty expensive, but for many people, it was almost the first kind of personal computer that kind of opened up, you know, the web and entertainment right. and communication all in one product. And I don't know that these augmented reality or XR devices will like replace something um, or, or give you a whole or, new set of behaviors that you really need to have. Right. What, what you're grasping for is sort of that aha moment, which is what the, the iPhone was, yeah. you know, par excellence. It will never be repeated. The, Oh my God, you can do that first. I just don't think so. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and, and okay. Um, again, I, I want to stress that we'll probably revisit this oh, of course. <laughs> in a few months. I, I, but, I mean, uh, yeah. Like the watch is an example of wearables existed. You know, Fitbit was what, five years before yeah. Yeah, so, so here, here's an important thing to understand about these devices and these products. And, and mm -hmm. I don't want to toot my horn too much, but um, in 2007, 
I predicted like the name for the iPad and I wrote up a blog post about what I thought the iPad could be, which was essentially sort of an extended wider iPhone. And, you know, I kind of got some of the parts wrong, but I actually, I think did a pretty good job predicting it. Um, you know, because I, I saw what, what the iPhone did. Now, if you know the history of the iPhone, it actually started out as the iPad and they shrunk it down to right, the iPhone right, right. and that is what got released. And so if you kind of continue the progression from iPad to iPhone to Apple Watch, all you're doing in, you know, Steve Jobs famously said in, in I think, 1981 or something when I was born um, that, you know, someone was asking him whether there'll be a different version, I think, of the Apple II or something that comes up. And what he said was, look, you know, it's it's just a matter of emphasis in terms of the form factor that computers occupy and take on. And so with the iPad, it's one type of computing experience. With the iPhone, it's another very personal type of computing experience. And then the watch we've figured out is kind of an augmentation for notifications and for fitness um, for those types of use cases. So when Except, it comes to, okay. Wasn't it you that uh, made the argument on the show several months ago that with when you add in um, AirPods, the watch, like the phone, like this is the next logical step. And that if, when you put all those things together, if you take any one part of the elephant that you don't know what you're holding, but when you start to put them all together, wasn't it you that was making the yes. argument that you can see a direction they're going so, in? So but this, 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 this is not against my point. Uh, like, so, so if, if you extend it, right, as I was saying, like iPad to iPhone to watch, and then you add in the, the, the glasses or goggles, that's not kind of a linear progression in terms of like proportions, proportion of experience. It's a completely new modality. Now, granted, yes, like you have the screen and the screen suddenly is overlaid on your eyes, but the way in which that screen will interact with your AirPods and your watch is yet to be seen and is a little bit unclear. So is this a product that you're gonna wear out in the world or is it a product that you're going to use in, in your private space or for work? Is it gonna be a product that's focused on fitness um, or for gaming, for example, you know, Apple Arcade and Apple Fitness are very important entrants into the space. So if this is an entertainment product, that's one thing. Right. You know, Zuckerberg is, is trying desperately to find out what the use case or application is for, you know, the, the Quest, now, the Quest Pro. And they're focusing on work, which is where Microsoft was like a decade ago with the HoloLens. And, you know, it's great for military use cases, but it's it's none of those products have really seem to take off in anywhere else except in those environments. So see, here, here's why I'm excited, because you're right to say that Apple doesn't always win but or get it right. But this is the first time since the iPhone that, as you're saying, other people are trying to shoehorn use cases into it. Yeah, and we don't true. know what Apple's is yet. True. Um, just like, you know, remember all the, the mock-ups of what the iPhone was supposed to look like? People didn't see the paradigm shift that the iPhone was because yeah. they couldn't conceive of it. <laughs> so we don't. I'm excited about this because you're right. Will they announce essentially sort of what that uh, end real thing is? Is which which is just oh, you could watch TV on the wall in front of you right. in the same room as someone. Or so is it entertainment? Is it I don't know? Just um, sort of uh, FaceTime on steroids? Hmm. Is it going out in the world and having your your notifications pop up? We don't know. It could be all of those things. It could be one of those things. It could be something that we. But that's the point. Is we? I, I do trust Apple enough to at least have a compelling thesis that they're going to try to sell us. Do you, do you remember when the first time um, the rumors of the the um, goggles came out? 
don't know if it was like um, 2018. Like, like I guess what I'm yeah. asking, I feel like it's been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And that feels a little no, bit different. No, I, I wouldn't argue that. And in fact, I think it's been within the life of the show, which is about to turn five years old. So that would be yeah. 2018. Okay. Um, so the reason why I say that though, is because it feels like, I mean, what one Apple can take their sweet time, right? Their main job right now is to sell Apple Silicon and these goggles will do that as well as whatever car they might come out with in the future. They're doing fine selling, you know, MacBook Pros and iPhones, you know, in the short term. Um, I guess what I'm curious about is like, what, like, what is the, cause I think we just heard that they're, they're pushing back, um, the, the car, but no, the car, but also the goggles, I think due to either. A, oh yeah. To the second issue, half of the year. Yeah. Right. Issue, right. Now, is that because of actual software and performance issues or is it because of a set of features that need to come out? Is it new telemetry? Is it, you know, if you remember, um, one of the things that, that Apple had announced, I feel like one or two WDCs ago was I think adopting the matter standard for in-home, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, communication. I, I there, there is some technology like that, that, probably needs to surpass Bluetooth in terms of its performance capabilities, that if they go fully wireless, that'll be, I think, the game changer. Whereas it feels like so many of the other devices, I know, I know that the Quest Pro is, is wireless, but it's still bulky. If Apple is able to really shrink down their components and provide performance with better battery life, et cetera, that could be the type of like accessible form factor that needs to happen in order to get the, the mainstream a lot more excited about this stuff. Well, the the bottom line point that I would make is, and again, whatever they come up with might not be right and might not excite me, but this is the first sort of greenfield, wide open. I have no idea what they think the use case is for this, but I'm fascinated to find out what they think that is. Um, since I'm the iPhone, yeah. yeah, 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 and and, um, and the, and the yeah. I will say just the, the juxtaposition with all the AI stuff that is going on. I think that is where it could be super magical, depending on how open they're willing to make their platform. Um, we should probably wrap soon, but I mm. obviously, um, it, have you got a prediction, um, for next year? And it, it doesn't have to be a prediction. Like I, ex- by, by this time, this exact date next year, this X or right. Y will have happened, but just what, where you think something's going to go that maybe excites you or something like that. Well, you know, and, and we, we, we talked about possibly, you know, going down this, this direction. So I might as I'll just bring it up now. Um, cause it does fit into a prediction, uh, based on the the conditions of the environment, so um, I was I was laid off on on Tuesday uh, from Republic. So my job at Republic was to be a product lead and a product manager on Founder Experience, and so that meant that I helped um, design the system that onboarded founders to raise uh, crowdfunding rounds on our platform. And I was part of uh, an eighteen percent staff, like across the company, lay, layoff layoffs. And you know, like I've. I've had many jobs in my career, so I'm not like super stressed out or worried about it. But, and you know, I also have like a privileged place, I think in, um, I don't know, like being in a, in a, in a good enough place personally, et cetera. So like, that's fine. Not everyone has the same uh, privileges that, that, that I do currently or, or in the past. And so when I, when I think about 2023 and I think about, you know, my own kind of moment to sort of stop and reflect and step back, um, there's a lot of other people, you know, actually like a hundred thousand or more who are coming out of the tech world who find themselves in the same place that I'm finding myself in now, which is to say, looking at the landscape, thinking about where the opportunities exist, thinking about whether this market downturn, as you started the show, sort of talking about this line down, well, I'm now in that line down, um, whether that will continue 
and for how long it will continue. It seems to me that, you know, and I have no real scientific basis for this, but, you know, maybe by this time next year, we might be starting to see like the, the shoots of things that are being planted and built now from a lot of the people that have been laid off and are finding new opportunities that will start to sprout. And that I think might lead to a whole new and interesting and perhaps, well, at least I hope, exciting period, you know, in 2024 and beyond. It doesn't say that 2023 is going to be a, a, a down year. You know, I'm sure there's lots of crazy things that are going to happen. Well, hopefully we'll see the end of this war. Um, but in terms of the talent that now is available and in terms of the reset in cultural company expectations, you know, to some degree, like brought on by Elon Musk, like installing beds, you know, in Twitter headquarters, um, there's a different sense for what it will take um, to, I think, you know, build, grow and thrive in this environment. You know, as you said, it's a lot harder to get those Series B checks now. Um, and so that that discipline needs to be brought back into the marketplace. Um, and I think we'll see a lot less, I don't know, silly products and silly apps because, I mean, frankly, AI will be able to generate apps. It'll be able to generate designs. It'll be able to generate lots of things that currently a lot of people do with their time that really isn't the most creative or strategic use of their of their intellect or intelligence. So, you know, it, like to try to put a point on it, I guess what I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm thinking is by next year, there's going to be a sobering, I think, that's happening to some degree. And in that decompression, that seriousness means that people will take less risks and be, you know, less, I don't know, willing to try stuff. For those who maintain their sense of, you know, child's mind, optimism, hope, fun, playfulness, and build really great products that people want to use, that also take advantage and weave in some of the great collaborative aspects of generative AI, I think we're going to start to see really, really fun and interesting stuff uh, actually come out of that. Um, so that's, I guess that's maybe more of a hopeful, optimistic take as opposed yeah. to a prediction. Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. 
Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. I mean, I, you know, I, we should, neither of us should make solid predictions, but like, think of <laughs> like what I'm doing investing wise and even what I'm doing with this show. I do not feel that there's any percent chance that like the, the, the com bubble bursting, the entire industry went away and had to be reconstructed from the ground up. I don't think we're in a situation like that. I think we're in a situation where unfortunately, very real people like you are going to be casualties of some form of reorganizing, belt tightening, um, restructuring, but it's not going to be. I, I without making a prediction, I, I would, I feel fairly confident that at some point, maybe even a year from now, it'll feel like, oh, yeah, there, there was a tough couple months, bad, some bad things happened, but generally the industry has kind of picked up. Mm-hmm. And started off in the direction it was going in anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So this would feel like a speed bump more than like a complete. We've got to change course, right? The businesses that are failing right now, the the people that are looking for work right now, I think that there's a very high likelihood that ideas and people will just flow in another channel, like mm-hmm. water going <laughs> downhill in a stream, as opposed to being completely dammed up for you know a lengthy period of time. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst at mixing metaphors, but that's what I'm saying is I, <laughs> I, have, I have a high degree of confidence, and it might not be in any year, maybe it'll be two years, three years, but I, I think that it's, this is a speed bump that we're going to shift gears, and it's not a wall that we've hit, you know? In some ways, it does a little bit in the sense that it feels like the car has been just sort of like pedal to the metal, racing as fast as it could, you know, making a lot of sloppy you know, decisions and turns and seemingly, you know, was unscathed for a while and suddenly just, you know, turned a corner and like did, you know, crash half into the wall and the car is like spinning around like and we don't know quite when it's going to stop. And yeah. once it does, it is going to be on a different track in a different direction. I think that a lot of the things that we've taken for granted for the last decade or so, as we were talking about with Anil last time, I mm-hmm. don't know that we're going to be able to take them for granted going forward. And I yeah. also don't know that there's for sure. an, another generation that's coming into the workforce for sure. and where they have a different set of assumptions and a different set of values. And they're looking at all the things that are going on around them. Like this is kind of messed up. And, you know, I, I think they're going to take a different approach to it perhaps. Um, and so, you know, I know that we have some skepticism about be real, but it's a, it's a young team. And, you know, like whether it's like Snapchat or B-Rail or other products like that, that have a different way of building products and a different value structure and a different way of seeing the world. I imagine that we're going to see people that come out next year that grew up with, you know, AI art and, you know, generative AI and, uh, you know, synthetic media. And they will feel so comfortable and so natural building, you know, products, experiences, media, entertainment with those tools that a lot of the people that are still, you know, like almost like using hand chisels, you know, to make, to make our, our products are going to seem antiquated. Um, when we think about it. like, I'll, I'll give you just two examples. You know, one is, um, a product that I hunted recently called Kive.ai. And, um, I think I talked about it on the show before, but they have a, a, an AI canvas that essentially, if you remember when we talked to, um, 
John Knack from from Photoshop, the uh, the, mm-hmm. the creator of um, photo aware or context aware fill. Um, you know, I showed this to him, and you know, he was super stoked about it. Essentially, what it allows you to do is imagine like a Figma multiplayer environment where you you start with some, you know, currently it's a square shaped image. And then you remove parts of the image that you don't like, and then you create a square, and then you provide some prompts, some AI prompts, and it'll give you four or five different variants of a scene or of the image that you want in various styles. And it will match and blend this new tile, essentially, with the art that you had before. And, you know, I made this amazing, like, tapestry for, for Joe for her, her birthday in November. And it's something that I could not have done, like, two months before. And she was, like, blown away, you know, to sort of, one, I was using Astria AI to generate um, these facial, like, profiles, which we were sort of going to talk about. Um, and then, but I brought it into this creative space that was multiplayer that allowed me to kind of, you know, create something new. Anyways, that type of tool is the type of thing that a whole new generation of things um, is going to be built from. Additionally, I'm seeing a lot of stuff happening in the Figma world with a lot of the plugins that are being created are actually taking advantage of AI such that you can just say, you know, create an interface, you know, that's for a banking app. Give me five different variants of a home screen. I'll choose the ones that I want. And then, you know, create the second screens that kind of look like this. And it becomes a probabilistic way of designing and creating um, products that creates so much more accessibility than than currently where you have to know all the code and you have to like write it yourself and you have to like know all the different platform dependencies all that stuff will be taken care of by a system uh, you know and so anyways that changes the nature of the relationship of how we're using technology um, and it'll disrupt a lot of the kinds of work and jobs i think that people take for granted currently you know maybe the the more interesting thing to do and then we can wrap up on this is like like leave little um, time capsules. Mm. Like I'm saying right now on December 8th, 2022, December 8th, 2023. Like if I say the statement now, um, the crypto winter is over. Like Mm. on December 8th, 2023, will that seem absurd or will that be spot on? Will, um, will all of these AI things have created a flowering of, of an, of a whole new industry or was it just a bunch of games and gimmicks? Well, that sound absurd or right on a year from now, you know, right, right. Elon, Elon Musk is still in charge day to day at Twitter. Well, that's absurd or, you know, like, um, <clears throat> those are the things that maybe if we keep these in mind, um, we can do our, uh, a year from now, uh, boy, can you believe, boy, Apple really knocked it out of the park. Forget the iPhone. Look at what Apple has done now. Uh-huh, you know? uh-huh. Like, so, so. Yes, so Brett Taylor and Stuart Butterfield have both left Salesforce. They are uh, among you know some of the best entrepreneurs and product builders out there. So mm-hmm. they have left you know the confines of Salesforce, mm-hmm. and Stuart has left Slack. You know, you know those those guys are going to go back out there and build again. That's another right. you know sort of dark horse aspect. You know, where something totally new you know could come to light um, that you know we're not even considering you know currently. So this is what I mean, where there's just a lot of talent that is going out into the marketplace with a whole new set of tools and assumptions that will build new things that are going to be very hard for us to predict based on what we currently see in the marketplace currently. Do you know, is there, you know how there's like competitive debate teams and things Mm -hmm. like that? Uh Is there, is there a, is there a competitive uh, metaphor murdering, (laughs) mixing metaphor competition? Cause you and I (laughs) murdering metaphors. I like that. Yeah. We should enter that because I think (laughs) you and I are both really good at that. 
Um, <laughs> we are. <laughs> so, uh, well, first of all, um, uh, happy new year, happy holidays to everyone, uh, to you, especially Chris, um, um obviously, uh, Chris, uh, if people have ideas for what Chris should do in the new year, yeah, true. <laughs> if you got something get interesting, in touch with you. Up, you know where to find yeah. me. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Um, thanks. Thanks to everybody for another year. We're, um, we're coming on the fifth year. I need to talk about this in a couple yeah. of months. Yeah. I didn't realize that it, it's already been five years of this show, but as ever, thank is, you, what everyone. What is the anniversary? It's March fifth, I believe. March fifth. Um, okay, All right, we'll I'll, to do a, I'll a know. Super show. Yeah, I'll know when it's coming up. I'll, I'll uh, but whatever. Um, but anyway, as ever, I'm eternally grateful for everyone listening. I'm grateful for you, Chris, for for doing these shows yeah. with me. Happy New Year to everyone. Right on. Thanks, Brian. You too. Later. Later.